Good morning. It's a privilege to be here this morning. Um, at, during the tea break, my good friend came up to me and said, Rob, don't forget where the brake pedal is. And I need to tell you a story of when we were in Mongolia. I was driving a Russian Jeep, and we did a trip right up to the northern parts of Mongolia, about 2,000 kilometers. And our brake system kept on failing, and I had to repair the whole system every two hours. Eventually, I got tired of that and just disconnected the brake system altogether and drove another 1,200 kilometers without brakes. That's what we're going to do this morning. <laughs> About 30 years ago, I sat in a living room in, in a small farm in, uh, in the Eastern Cape and listened to an old man called uh, DJ Reeds. Many of you may have known him. And um, he told me a story. He said, um, the population of the Ganges River Valley in India is very close to at what at that time was the population of sub-Saharan Africa. In other words, you could have taken the whole population of sub-Saharan Africa and you could have put it into the... Ganges River Valley, the population would have been the same. And he said there are millions and millions and millions of churches in sub-Saharan Africa. There isn't a single unreached country in sub-Saharan Africa. In the Ganges River Valley at that time, there was one church. And that stirred in me, it woke up in me a passion for the unreached. And that's what I want to burn hot on about this morning is about the unreached people groups. And we know what the biblical mandate is that um, in, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, God said to, or Genesis chapter 2, God said to um, Adam and Eve, multiply and fill the earth. And then he spoke to Abraham and he says, all nations will be part of your inheritance. You will be a blessing to all nations. And then you see the whole biblical history. You see Joseph going off and saving Egypt. You see Jonah going off and saving the Assyrians. You see Daniel. Daniel went to Babylon. There were five kings that ruled while he was there. Four of those five kings got saved and believed in the great God Almighty of the Jews. And they served the king of heaven. It's an incredible story. And the time that the people of Israel stopped being a blessing to the nations, that is the time when Phariseeism came into, into their, uh, their nation. And when Jesus came, they were all full-on Pharisees, and they were trying to follow and say, the blessing is not for us. The blessing is not to be given through us to others. The blessing is for us, and forget the others. And that's why Phariseeism came in, and Jesus came right into that and said, no, I'm sending you out to all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit so you can disciple all nations. And so that's the biblical mandate that we have. The question then is, how are we doing? After 2,000 years, of being, 2000 years after being, having been commanded to go to all nations, how are we doing? And can I say that we're actually doing pretty badly? There's nearly 8 million people on the planet. 3.3 billion of those people have never heard of Jesus. 42% of the people groups on this earth have never heard of Jesus. There are about 7,400 unreached people groups. Now, you may have heard a figure of 17,000. There's two ways of counting. One of them, for example, if you take the Shugni people, they're in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and in Tajikistan. Some people count those as three people groups. The lesser figure, the lower figure, is counting that as one people group, but in three different countries. So I'm taking the more conservative figure, 7,400 ethnic groups in the world, and of which 4,500 have never been reached. Now, I'm not talking about the lost 
For example, South Africa, Australia, America, full of lost people. But they, in America, in No Name, Tennessee, or in Crinkly Bottom in the UK, wherever you are in the Western, white Western wealthy world, you have an opportunity, most places, to hear the gospel every 24 hours. Somewhere in your environment, the gospel has been preached every 24 hours. For somebody living in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Tajikistan, the average opportunity that they have to hear the gospel or to hear the name of Jesus is once every 30 years. And that's on average, which means some people hear it twice and some people will never hear the name of Jesus. That also means that some people don't even know that the cross is a religious symbol. In fact, they've turned it up upside down. Some people have made it a Buddhist symbol. symbol. And that's an absolute tragedy. Another way of looking at how do you define unreached people groups is if right now in the Muslim world there are many, many people who are getting visions of Jesus or having dreams about Jesus and starting to ask the question, well, who is Jesus? I have a friend and Jesus came, sat on his bed for two nights in a row and explained the gospel to him and he'll never walk away from Jesus because of that. But there are people in the in some of these groups, in some of the Muslim world, who receiving visions of Jesus and having dreams of Jesus and meeting Jesus personally, and they wake up and they say, well, I want to find out more about this Jesus. Within a population of one million people, there will be not one single person who can tell them about Jesus. That's an unreached person. Within a population of one million Nobody can tell them about Jesus. If you're living in New York City, or if you're living in anywhere in the Western world, and you have questions about Jesus, within five minutes you can Google somebody, and within half an hour you can be talking about Jesus and asking your questions. Now for us, we may not like the leadership models very much, we may not like the congregational structures very much, we may not like the performance structures very much, that's not, totally irrelevant. The fact is, if you want to find out about Jesus in the Western world, you can find out about Jesus very quickly. But for these people, there is no chance for them to hear about Jesus because there's nobody to tell them. And there's been situations where a, a missionary or wherever has gone into an unreached people group. So, for example, in Nagaland in India, somebody went in there and they started talking about Jesus and somebody came up to him and said, you know, I had a dream about 30 years ago about this person, Jesus. I thought I was the only one on this planet. There are about 340 people groups. Out of these 4,500 people groups, there are about 340 people groups that in 2,000 years have never, ever been targeted for the gospel in any way whatsoever. There's no Bible. There's not even a single Bible verse in their language. There's no audio Bible. There's nothing. And some of them are insulated from the gospel by other unreached groups. The biggest one that I know of, for example, is the Sanani people in Yemen. Fourteen and a half million people. The people groups around them are also Muslim. They're one or two believers in those people groups. But no believer... No Christian person, no, people who, no person who follows Jesus has ever gone to the Sanani people to say there's a person called Jesus. Never in 2,000 years. It means they've never heard of Jesus in their own language. Isn't that shocking? Then there's another, another group um, on the Sentinel Islands. You may have heard of them. 
Nobody knows how many people in that people group because they live on an island. Anyone who tries to land on the island gets shot. They've got bows and arrows and they shoot them. So nobody knows what the population is. Nobody knows what religion they are. Nobody knows what their beliefs are. Nobody knows anything about their culture at all because nobody has been able to land on that island. About four years ago, a young man from America went to that island and he tried to land. As he got onto the beach, he got stuck with about 20 arrows and they took them two weeks to recover his body and they needed soldiers to go in just to recover his body. Now the word says in Revelations chapter 7, if people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group will be in heaven praising God and singing out incredible praises to God, which means those Sinani people in Yemen, in North Yemen, in a war zone, are going to be there praising God. And those people on the Sentinelese Islands are there going to be there praising God and worshiping the God of heaven, which is incredible. But God has given us the mandate to go and reach these people. Some people have asked me, is it not unjust that God condemns people to hell because they haven't heard of him? And I think the unjust injustice is not on God's side. God told us to go. We need to take hold of the injustice that is on our part because in 2,000 years we have failed to fulfill the mandate that God gave us. And that's challenging. And where it hits me personally is I've always grown up as a Christian expecting with this expectation and this hope that I would see Jesus come back in my lifetime. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he said, all nations will be preached, will be reached by the gospel. All nations will hear this gospel and then the end will come. That tells me it doesn't matter whether you're premillennialist, postmillennialist, amillennialist, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or whatever. It, none of those things are relevant because until those people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus is not coming back. And when I look at how far we've got in 2,000 years, I have to come to the very sad realization that I probably won't see Jesus coming back in my lifetime. And that's shocking and it's painful for us as Christians to think about something like that. To find out why, to find out what's happening to, for these unreached people groups, you've got to also, you always got to ask the question, where's the money going? And um, some statistics, there's something like every year in America, there's $50 billion embezzled from churches. There are $8 billion spent on conferences and equips. For the unevangelist and unevangelized, that's the lost, including the unreached people groups, there's $2 billion spent just on evangelism. Compare that to $8 billion spent on equips. <laughs> One cent out of every dollar given to the churches is spent on unreached people groups. Tony was raving yesterday about how much money is going out of South Africa and Gauteng to support the, to support the works of the, of the gospel. I want to know how much of that is going to unreached people groups. I haven't seen, personally, I haven't seen any. Thank you for your generosity. But ask your pastors, is this money going to somebody who's never heard of Jesus? Or how much of this money is going to somebody who's never heard of Jesus? 
challenging. Sorry, I haven't found my brake pedal yet. <laughs> why aren't we going to the people groups? There are three reasons why we're not going to people groups. One is that it's very often dangerous. Most of the places where these unreached people groups are, a standard wedding accessory is an AK-47. And they let off the AK-47 set at firing during the wedding. That's, that's fairly dangerous, wouldn't you say? Some of the places are not just dangerous because of the weapons and the bullets and the opportunity for lead poisoning that's going around. Some of them are dangerous because it's just dangerous to live there. The closest I came to dying was I was driving this Russian Jeep and there was a, it was minus 35 outside. Um, we were about four hours from anywhere. It was in a place where there were no roads. We were following the telephone lines to get where we were going. It was sunset. We were planning to drive through the night and there was a big clunk in front and I thought the fan belt had broken. But what had happened is the water pump assembly had actually broken off and fallen down into the motor. That's, for those of you that don't know engines, that's a big, big problem. You don't fix it with a number 17 spanner. And I knew we were in trouble then because there's wolves in that area. It's minus 35, the sun's going down, and that's dangerous. And it was dangerous, and I'm so glad that about four, year, four hours later, somebody came along and found us and rescued us. And in Mongolia at minus 35, if you've got a car can, that can drive, and you see somebody with a car that can't drive, you don't leave them there, because they die. So it's dangerous from that point of view. A few years ago, I went to Nepal, and um, the pastor said, we don't want to do these, these kind of equipped conference things in the city. You want to meet us, you come out to where the churches are. And we went on this road for about five hours, and I have to say that Roof of Africa rally looked like a German autobahn in comparison to this road. <laughs> Within five minutes of us getting onto this bus, the conductor started handing out little plastic bags, and we wondered what the plastic bags were for. Ten minutes later, when everyone started throwing up, we realized what the plastic bags were for. And there were times when the bus would lean over and it would be leading over the cliff and 100 meters down there you'd see another bus lying. That's dangerous and that's why people don't go to those countries. It's difficult in those countries. Can I say, we loved living in Mongolia. We were in Mongolia for 14 years and we absolutely loved it. There couldn't be a better place to bring up your children. But when we first got there, it took us two weeks to find out where to buy bread. And then we had to learn the language. And it is difficult learning a language, and we are not gifted language learners. The lowest marks I got at school were learning French. And here we're in this place in Mongolia, now we've got to learn the language because there's no choice, because there's nobody to translate for you. And we had to learn the language. And that's hard work. But do you know, we live in Europe, do you know how much help we need in Europe right now? There's only three churches active in our network, in our to, we're not allowed to say network. In our to, togetherness, our family, whatever we are. <laughs> and I ask people, will you come and help us in Germany? And they say, mm, yeah, it's hard, we have to learn the language. German's a hard language. Yes, it is a hard language. It's a brutally hard language. But you know what? If you don't get yourself over that little hump and realize that actually these people need to hear about Jesus, you won't be motivated to learn the language. And it is hard. But we can't say it's hard and let, us, let that hold us back because you need the grace of God to learn a language. And Paul said, God spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
We are not language learners, but we have learned the Mongolian language, we've learned the German language, and in those situations we found out that the grace of God is sufficient to get us to do what we need to do. So don't stand back and say, oh, it's too hard. Right now in Holland, we're looking at the fact that of all the relating churches in Holland, there are two churches that don't have a pastor or won't have a pastor by the end of the year. You guys have all learned Afrikaans. It's not a big jump from Afrikaans to Dutch. They need pastors. and We need help in Europe. But also all these unreached people groups need help. They need to hear about Jesus, which means to get to them, you've got to invest three or four years of learning the language. And the only way you can do that is when you're there with the people. There's no other way. You can learn it theoretically. You can learn it online here. But it just doesn't work as well as going and being with the people. The other thing about the reason that people don't go is because it's really expensive. And this is where, in some ways, I believe we need to change our thinking. If you want to go to a Western, wealthy, white, English-speaking country, it's drop-dead easy. And your pastor will say to you, go there, get a job, or we'll support you for two years, but in two years you need to have gathered 10 families, they can pay tithes, that'll pay your salary, and you're good to go. Drop dead easy. But if you're going to go to a place like Kyrgyzstan, you can get a job there, but you'll pay, be paid local wages, which won't even pay the rent on your apartment because as a foreigner, you'll be charged 10 times the rent of anyone else. You go to the market, and they'll charge you double the price. I used to go to the market in Mongolia, and um, I, can, I can speak Mongolian with an out-and-out accent, so if you don't see me, you won't think that I'm a foreigner. And I would go there with my perfect accentless Mongolian and ask for the prices, and I'd still get charged double, and then I'd always have to ask, give me the Mongolian price. So we got a job, I got a job in a tourist company, Bridget was working at a, at a school, and the salary I got was about half of what we had to pay for our rent. You can say to these people, you can say to people, oh, go to a place like that and start up a business. Well, all very good if your business is for foreigners, and then they can pay foreign fees and foreign school fees or whatever it is that you're teaching or doing. But the thing is, you go to a place like Kyrgyzstan, there's no foreigners that go there. So how are you going to set up a business where you're going to charge foreigners foreign prices? So then you have to set up a business that's going to charge the local prices. They can't afford to pay anything. And so you end up earning about a tenth of what you need to live in order to live there. And in, in, the, in that process, while you're trying to set up a business and you're trying to get a job and you're trying to strive and stress and trying to find a way, you're also trying to learn the language. And what we started to realize, and I'm, I'm working with a particular group in Germany at, at the moment, and the thing that we're talking about is if you're going to go and start building something in an unreached people group, you need to plan on financing that thing fully for 10 years. The first three years are simply language learning and nothing else. And we learned that because when I, the very first time I preached in Mongolian, I um, wrote it all out. I went through it with my language teacher. He wasn't a Christian, but he got to hear the gospel completely because he had to help me with all my sermons. I wrote the whole thing out, and I stood in the pulpit, and I read the preach. And after that, somebody came up to me, and he says, after four years, I can at last come talk to you. He says, I don't trust your translator. Now I can talk to you face to face. On that day, I said, I'll never, ever preach in English again. 
That is what language breaks out and breaks open for us. But it takes financial investment, it takes time investment to get it done. And if you're going to reach an unreached people group, you need to look at a 10-year investment. Some people, because of the whole missionary mindset, will think, well, three years and then we're done. Three years, you've only just started to learn the language. You haven't even got a hold of the culture yet. And then you've still got to get into the culture, and then you've still got to plant your church. And you've got to find ways and strategies to reach these people with the gospel. It's a long-term commitment. It's expensive. And I want to say that Albert Einstein defined insanity. He said, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And there's certain things that we've been doing in our togetherness and there's certain things that we've been talking about in our togetherness for 45 years, which sound wonderful and sound true and sound amazingly good, but I think, like Romans 12 says, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to change our thinking on some of these things. And one of the things I want to bang on a little bit about is finance. You see, the narrative that we've been telling ourselves that that you send missionaries out and missionaries get entitlement complexes and they get dependency complexes, which may be true. And can I tell you, for every bad missionary story that you've got, I can match you 20 to 1. Because we lived out there, we met lots of missionaries, we saw how the finance is being abused. And we saw some horrifying things. And I don't want to tell horrible stories because there's some very godly people who've gone out to the nations. But the reality is, if we don't change our thinking, if we stick with our two years, get a job and get over it or start a business, we are not going to reach the nations. We're not going to reach the unreached people groups at all. We're going to have no impact. And if you think about our collective history, Last night you heard about a church plant happening in Armenia. When was the last time before that you heard a church plant happening in an unreached people group? Every church plant that I have heard of going out of our togetherness has been to Western, wealthy, English-speaking, and mostly white nations. And that's great. I love it that people are going to take, take the gospel to the lost. But again, like I said earlier, No Name Tennessee, Crinkly Bottom UK, those people can get the gospel if they want it. And they have been presented with the gospel. There are some people, some people groups who in 2,000 years have never ever heard the gospel. And therefore you cannot hold back. It's it's like saying 50% of all people who get married get divorced. Therefore I'm not going to get married. Well, there's a bunch of missionaries who've done terrible things with money and done terrible things on the mission field and have abused the people and handled the whole thing badly. And there's some places where the mission field, so to, so to say, is completely spoiled because of what the missionaries have done. That is true. But just because of what they did wrong doesn't mean we need to stop doing what we are called to do, and that is to take the gospel to the unreached people groups. And if you're going to be doing it, and if you're going to be serious about it, you need to think seriously about a 10-year commitment and a 10-year investment of finances. We need to change our thinking on finances if we're going to reach these unbreached people groups. Otherwise, in 40 years' time, we'll be still known as a, not a network, 
a grouping, something, a thing of people who go to Western, wealthy, English-speaking, and mostly white nations. And that would be a tragedy for us as a grouping of churches who speak the nations but don't do the nations. And I hope that that doesn't happen, and I hope something changes. How do you know which nation you call to? Well, Jesus didn't specify that. He said, go to all nations. People often ask us, Bridget and I, how did you get called to go to Mongolia? We were at an at a LTT, as they were called then, back in the Drakensberg, and we were stirred up by one of the things that Dudley spoke out, and um, so we prayed together after the meeting, and we both said, Lord, we'll go anywhere, even out to Mongolia. <laughs> the only answer that we got was this feeling of a happy smile coming from heaven. So then we said, okay, God, but now, because of Romans 15, 20, we don't want to go where anyone else has ever been, and we, don't, we want to go where nobody else wants to go. Number two, we want to go to a place where there's no McDonald's because we don't want our children to grow up knowing about McDonald's. We just felt the smile from heaven get bigger. No words. No spectacular flashes from heaven. We chose the country, and God smiled. So then we went to Dudley, and he, we said, um, we feel that outer Mongolia is our place to go. And he said, he got a fright. He says, I can't tell whether this is from God or not. But he says, go. If God's in it, it'll work. If he's not in it, come back, and there's no shame. And that set us free. But the thing that God did speak to us is say, don't ask for money. And so we went out to Mongolia, and we never, ever asked anyone ever for any money. We never wrote any missionary newsletters with a bank account on the bottom. We just had this conviction that God was going to provide for us in the places that we were going to work. And sometimes it's got really, really, really tight. But we have never gone, our family has never gone a day without food. Because God provided, has provided for us for the last 27 years, 28 years, wherever we are. Now, we can't impose that on young people and say, trust God for your finances. It'll scare the young people away. I would rather say, as a church, I'm willing to invest in you so you can go to a nation, but I want a 10-year commitment from you. If God speaks to the young person and says, I want to go out without asking for finances or without outside support, let them do it. But don't impose them on that just because Rob Forbes went that way. And so we went out to, we, we then said to God, okay, if it's Mongolia, please confirm it. And we left that conference. We went down to Durban, I think, and we went to an exclusive books because I like to buy books. And there was a display of books on a particular topic. The topic was Mongolia. We got home, turned on the TV. There was a documentary about Mongolia as we turned it on. We opened the mail, and there was a letter, a newsletter, generally general kind of mission newsletter, and the feature was a church plant in Mongolia. At the end, we were saying, okay, Lord, we get it. That was, and that was how God, he called us. We chose the country. So you know what you can do? I believe you can pick a country, you can pick a nation, you can pick a people group and say, God, I'm going there unless you stop me or unless you redirect me. One of the saddest things that I saw 20 years ago, a young man, a young couple came to us and said, we feel God's called us to China. And we were so excited about this. We thought, yay, China's 
where they were called in China is a good couple of thousand kilometers away from where we were in Mongolia, but we thought, yeah, we won't be alone in Asia. They went and asked their pastor, and the pastor said, hmm, ha, hmm, bit difficult. Why don't you go to America instead? They went to America. They're not even in ministry. They're doing business. I made a mistake once. A young man came to me. He was, he'd come to me several times. He was bubbling and excited about going to Japan. One day he came and asked me, how hard is it actually? I told him how hard it is actually. I gave him a half hour download of how hard it is to plant a church in Japan. Well, he went to Canada. <laughs> and he's no longer in ministry and I think he's doing some business thing. And I think, why? I would hate to stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, you told that, Jesus would say, hey, why, I told that guy to go to China, but you told him to go to America. I would hate to be the pastor who said that. If you have the fear of God in you and you're a pastor and somebody has a crazy calling on their life, figure out how to get them there, not how to divert them to another nation. And if they need character problems, if they've got character issues and they need to grow up and they need to get real with life, we'll help them to do that. But don't divert them from what God has called them to do. Help them to get there, please. Second thing I think we need to change our thinking on is, is equips. Here I am speaking in equip and I think we need to change our thinking. There was one occasion where Paul held an equip. He held the equip in, in Ephesus and he called all the Ephesian elders together and he said, Let's, I'm, I'm going to do some training because I'm off going to die now. And the qualification for him to be able to do that equip was that the whole of the Ephesus region had been reached by the gospel. Paul said, there is no other place in the Ephesus region where the gospel needs to be preached. Therefore, let's hold an equip and let's get back together. And therefore, let's do some training. Every single other event, every single other thing that Paul did for the whole of the book of Acts is he went from city to city and went from church to church. And I have to tell you, friends, we need to get back into the churches. There's a thing that's happening in Central Asia, most of the Central Asia Asian countries, and I've seen it in Pakistan, I've seen it in India, I've seen it even in Bosnia and some of the Eastern European countries. There's this thing that happens. There's a bunch of missionaries in all these countries. Kyrgyzstan, Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, there's a bunch of missionaries and they're getting boodles of money and they've got nothing to do because they never go outside of Bishkek and Bishkek is pretty well reached. So what they do is they, they rent a conference center on a beautiful lake. They invite as many pastors as they can find to get to this conference center. They give them a week of the condition is that you come to teachings every, mo every morning, but you can bring your family and, you, and then you can have a good time for the rest of the day. You have fellowship, you build relationship, right? Well, these pastors all know each other and because there's so many missionaries, there's about a six-week period during the summer in Kyrgyzstan where every single week a pastor and his family can go and get a free conference in a beautiful resort next to a lake. Then the missionary gets to write his newsletter and send it off to America to get more money. The pastors have had a nice free holiday, but nothing changes in the churches. And so... We went to, uh, a few years ago, as I said, I went to Nepal, and the pastor said, we don't want to play this conference game. We are serious about God, and if you want to find out what's happening to us, you need to 
get out of the city, you need to come to our churches. The first church we went to, they dropped us off on the side of the road, and then we had to, it took us um, six hours to walk seven kilometers. And the reason it took us to, to walk that, that long was because the road was like this. It was like climbing a staircase. We got up to the top there. Some people had walked three days to get to that conference, to that church, to find out what was happening. Do you know that in Nepal, 90% of salvations happen because of healing? People get sick, they go to the witch doctor, they go to the normal doctor, they go to anyone they can find. The last person they go to is a local Christian, especially a foreign Christian. The Christian prays for them, they get healed, they get saved. And you speak to any person in Nepal who's a Christian and they'll say, I got saved because Jesus healed me. And so what I want to say is if it's expensive, it's difficult, it takes a lot of time, but the way we're going to reach these unreached people groups is we've got to go to where the unreached people groups are. Let me be a little bit more controversial. It's very easy, how can I put this in a friendly way? It's very easy to go to certain countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, India, um, some of the Asian countries. It's very easy to go and find a pastor an apostle who has 20 to 30 to 40 churches connecting with him, who has by and way an orphanage or a school that needs a lot of money. And if you want to feel apostolic, it's very easy to go and reach, hook yourself with, up with one of those. And can I say there's nothing wrong with doing that because ultimately you're helping those churches to do better and they're going to grow and they're going to take the gospel to where they are. But don't say that you're going to unreached people groups when you're doing that because you're going to reach people groups who just need a lot of help. There's nothing wrong with that. And some people are open for that and they call to that and it's a great thing to do. My heart is to find who has never heard the name of Jesus and how we can do better. The third thing I want to talk about that we need to change our thinking is the use of um, parachurch organizations. Sometimes the only way, to, I'm just going to say it very quickly, sometimes the only way of getting into a nation is to start a business or to start an NGO that you go in and you establish something. We've got friends who are trying to get into Afghanistan. The basic condition that their leadership has put on them to get into Afghanistan is that they have three evacuation routes set up. They were in Afghanistan, they were evacuated on the last plane out but they have to have three evacuation routes set up. The only way they can get into Afghanistan is if they use an NGO. And the NGO that they're using is they're saying, poppy growing is all over in Afghanistan, but saffron has the equal value to puppies. Therefore, let's set up an NGO where we teach people to plant saffron instead of puppy, puppies. To get to these unreached people groups, because they are Muslim, because they are closed nations, you need to have an NGO that will help you get there. And so they can be useful tools. What can we do as churches to get ourselves more active in reaching unreached people groups? And I want to close with this. Number one, learn. Learn about unreached people groups. Go on go to go into Joshua Project. You can get their app, and every single day at 10 o'clock in the morning, they send you a, a message to say, this is the unreached people group that you can pray for. Go to Joshua Project. They've got some great data, great information. 
Read The Insanity of God and the Insanity of Obedience by Nick Ripkin. Those are handbooks on reaching the nations. They talk about Muslim background believers, Hindu background believers, Christian background believers, and all sorts of believers, and they give strategies on how to reach them. That's the insanity of God and the insanity of obedience. But learn about people, unreached people groups. In our church, we have a group that's growing now, and we meet on Tuesday evenings, and we don't pray for granny and auntie and all the rest of the thing. We don't even pray for our own church. What we do is we focus on unreached people groups, and we pray for an hour into those unreached people groups. And if we know somebody who's working into them, we get them onto the Zoom chat and we pray for them right away. And can I say, just the fact that we are praying for those people and learning about their situation, we've seen God do some amazing miracles. So, for example, uh, there was a church in a, in a, in a certain place that um, had just decided they were going to get going. They had a venue. He, at the prayer meeting, he said, we need chairs. We prayed for chairs. The next week, he phoned us up and said, please stop praying for chairs. I've got double as many as I need. And we've seen God do incredible miracles every week. You get onto Zoom with somebody, you pray for them, and, and because, simply because they're working in an unreached area, you pray for them, you see what God does, and you've got these incredible testimonies. So learn about the nations, pray for the nations, pray for these unreached people groups. Thirdly, give. As a church in Munich, we want to try and give 10% of our income, not just away, but specifically to unreached people groups. You pray and ask God how much of your, your, not your tithing, but of your offering, how much of that needs to go to unreached people groups and earmark it and make sure that the people who deal with your money are held accountable that it goes to unreached people groups. Use your finances. This is an incredibly wealthy nation. And yes, the exchange rates aren't particularly favorable, but there's money flowing out here like water. Use your finances to be a blessing and to target unreached people groups. And you can do that individually or you can do that as a church. Be wise on how you give your money. Be wise on whom you give your money to. Give your money to somebody who's actually doing it, not just talking about doing it. And finally, go. Get yourself a passport. Get yourself a ticket and go somewhere. Go somewhere where there's an unreached people group. Go and just meet the people. What I'm hoping to do next year or the year after is simply go to Iran. And Bridget and I will go to Tehran and Isfahan and, and a um, couple of other cities. And all you're going to do is sit in coffee shops. We're very introverted, so we struggle to approach people. But we're going to wait. We hear that in Iran, if you just sit in a coffee shop, people will come to you. And they'll ask you about stuff. You know, Iranians see Islam as an oppressive religion. Most Iranians want to be set free of Islam. They're looking to Christianity as a means to get set free of Islam. The difficulty is because they've grown up with a Muslim worldview, they come with a very legalistic worldview. And they want to know, what is the thing I must do to become a Christian? And they ask the question, give me three steps to becoming a Christian. In their mind, it's say, say a particular prayer, get baptized, and join a church. I was dealing with some... Um, Iranians in Dresden while we were there, and they were asking the same question. I said to them, I'm not going to give you the three things to do. You go in the forest, you talk to Jesus, and when Jesus talks to you, talks back to you, come tell us about it. Every single week, we had people coming, and as I walked in the room, I'd be able to see, aha, he talked with Jesus this week, and Jesus talked to him. They were sitting on the edge of their seat, please can we testify that we met Jesus this week? 
And these are people who met Jesus. One man was the son of a mullah in Afghanistan. And he said, I want to get baptized. He said, I met Jesus, I want to get baptized. And when we did baptisms there for these kind of people, they would always say, no photographs allowed. This guy said, I want photographs. And he put them himself on his own Facebook, knowing that his father would see that, knowing that in that moment a death sentence would come, and that his father would contact other Afghans in Germany to get him killed. He said, I don't care. I want my father to know I'm a follower of Jesus. These people are willing to pay a price. And if you go to some of these nations, there are people who say, is there anyone, is there anyone, is there anyone who will tell me about Jesus? or to give me a way out of this mess? Is there nobody who's coming? And my heart this morning is, I've been a little bit rude and a bit, a bit controversial, I know that, and a bit confrontational, but my heart this morning is, is 4,000 people, 4,500 unreached people groups who do not know that Jesus is God. Do you hear their cries? Do you hear them calling out, will somebody come and bring us the truth? Is there anyone who'll come and bring us the truth? And the reality is when you go to those nations, you will always, always, always find that God has gone ahead of you. And it doesn't matter which nation you go to, you will always find that God has gone ahead of you and prepared the way. Last story and then I'll shut up. When we went to Mongolia in 1995, I'm not an evangelist. I would rather go to their dentist than do evangelism, to be honest. <laughs> I'm an introvert. I struggle to approach people. And I said, God, how are you going to use this non-evangelist introvert to, to lead a people to you? And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. What had happened before we got there is Campus Crusade, an NGO, parachurch organization, had translated the Jesus movie into Mongolian over three years had taken the Jesus movement into every single settlement in the country. They had broadcast it twice a year on national TV, and you need to know that even the nomads have TV because they, the communist government gave them a satellite dish and a, and, and a solar panel and a battery and a TV so they could broadcast propaganda. So even the nomads have TV, and they saw the Jesus movie. Alongside of that, there was a German man called Walter Heidenreich who said, I'm going to take a thousand young Germans into Mongolia to preach the gospel. We got there a couple of weeks after they finished that project of a thousand young Germans. We got there. People were knocking on our door and saying, please tell me about Jesus. So in all our inadequacies and, and incapabilities, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. We got there. We found that God had done all the evangelism work or anyway. We just had to take in the harvest. We just had to receive the harvest. And this is what I want to say. When you go to any of these nations, you will find out that God has already been there ahead of you. And he will open doors. He'll set up contacts. He'll make ways for you. The cry of my heart is these unreached people groups, the 4,500, but it's also even more than that, the 340 unreached and unreachable people groups. Jesus will not come back until those are, can be counted in that mass who will be there in the book of Revelation. He will not. And so if you're serious about bringing Jesus back, if you're serious about seeing Jesus come back, you need to get out into those unreached people groups. You need to find a way. Or you need to support somebody who is finding a way. Let the cry of these people 
touch your heart today. That's all I want to say. Listen to their cries. Because they're crying out, is there anyone who'll come tell us about Jesus? Thank you.